Good morning. I'll be reading Amos 5, uh, 6 through 9, and then chapter 6, verse 1. Seek the Lord and live, or he will sweep through the house of Joseph like a fire. It will devour, and Bethel will have no one to quench it. You who turn justice into bitterness and cast righteousness to the ground, he who made the Pleiades and Orion, who turns blackness into dawn and darkens day into night, who calls for the waters of the sea and pours them out over the face of the land, the Lord is his name. He flashes destruction on the stronghold and brings the fortified city to ruin. Woe to you who are complacent in Zion, and to you who feel secure on Mount Samaria, you notable men of the foremost nation, to whom the people of Israel come. Thank you, Sean. And if you have your Bible, we're going to be there. In fact, the, most all of chapter 5. And um, we will, as we mentioned with the young people, we will probably sound like we're on repeat. That's just something that Amos seems intent to do in a variety of ways is to repeat himself. Would you pray with me? Here we are again, Lord of hosts, God of angel armies. Rusty and our worship team have led us to sing songs you've heard us sing. Often even, we've prayed, sang, taken an offering, shared with the children, and now there is hope for both a good and short sermon. We will then repeat what Jesus told us to do and what Paul reminded us about. We will take the bread and cup sharing in the Eucharist, the Lord's Supper, the thanksgiving for your gift to us. And as we do, remind us, repeat it to us, what John Newton gave us to sing, "'Tis grace that brought us safe thus far, and grace will lead us home, and all God's people say." Anything worth saying is worth repeating. It's rare that we come across something worthwhile in life, and a single encounter is enough to stay with us. So says Kenwar Singh, also known as the humble poet. Anything worth repeating. Carrie Duprat and Beverly Rexford, a, a mother and daughter business duo, opened the vintage clothing shop, their thrift store, worth repeating, in St. Albans, Vermont. In the About section of their website, they write, We take pride in offering our valued customers creative collections for each season. Try us on for size yourself and understand why so many have made worth repeating thrift shop their favorite shopping destination. Anything worth saying is worth repeating, and I guess anything worth wearing in one decade is worth repeating in another. And for Amos? Amos? His charge that Israel, the ones called the people of God, have opted for ritual over relationship is repeated here in Amos 5. I mean, we just did this last week, where Amos 
really critiqued the people for their willingness to perform rituals and ignore the relationship that might change their lives. If it's worth Amos repeating from chapter 4 and finding it also in chapter 5, then it must be worth us hearing on repeat. I hate, I despise your festivals, and I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the offerings of well-being of your fatted animals, I will not look upon. Take away from me the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the melody of your harps. Amos. Amos, Amos is, is giving us the word of the Lord like that communicator who won't be denied the opportunity to make his or her point. In other words, he is given the word of the Lord of hosts, the, the God of angel armies, as Eugene Peterson gives it to us, and insists that his people, that his people hear the gravity of their faithlessness and the consequences that follow. Now listen, God is not rubbing Israel's nose in it. God is making the case that when it does happen, when it, when it does occur, when what Amos says here, fallen no more to rise is maiden Israel, forsaken in her land with no one to raise her up, that they will remember that God, Yahweh, the Lord of hosts, the God of angel armies, bore repeating over and over his love for his people, and yet they preferred another. Believe it or not, reading Amos, we find love lurking in the word the Lord gives Amos to give to the people. And why, why interrupting the description of the descent of Israel from a mighty army to a decimated military when he says the city that marched out a thousand will have ten left. I mean, love dots the landscape of what God is saying to Amos, even though it's difficult to hear Amos riff on the people for their lack of love for one another when he says, Therefore, because you trample the poor and take from them levies of grain, you have built houses hewn of stone, but you shall not live in them. You have planted pleasant vineyards, but you shall not drink their wine. And it is easy for us. It's easy for us to hear Amos's words and fixate on the calamity that's coming. And when we do, we're likely to miss that there's a hymn given to us, an invitation, and then someone who is calling Maybe we should work this backwards. I mean, we were accustomed to the invitation at the end, but by the time we're in the middle of Amos's uh, word to the people from the Lord, we're getting the invitation here. It's in a, and it's in a single word showing up three times, and if we've said it once, we'll repeat it and say it again. Anything in the Scriptures, particularly in the Hebrew Scriptures, the Old Testament we call it, anytime something is said three times, we probably need to know that it's being said over and over and over and over again. Three times is a way of saying it's on repeat. Three times we hear the word seek. Three times the word of the Lord through Amos invites Israel to a different way in the world. Three times 
The people who claim to be seeking the Lord every time they go to worship are now being invited to seek the Lord. Seek me and live, he says the first time. Seek me and live. Don't seek the places where you think you'll find me. I mean, he tells them, listen, don't go to Bethel, don't go to Gilgal, don't go to Beersheba. All these places you have made shrines for your rituals. I mean, Hosea. Hosea gets this. Hosea actually uh, critiques the people, accuses the people, describes what the people have done. They've taken Bethel, which means house of God, and they've turned it into Beth Avon, which means house of evil. In other words, the very place that the people were intending to go to express their ritual worship to the Lord, they'd actually turned into places of idolatry. So when Amos says, hey, seek me and live, the words of the Lord are coming to Israel saying, I'm not there. I'm not going to be in the places that you've turned into places of idolatry. And it started all the way back with Jeroboam, the first one. And it continued through to the day of Amos. They were no longer places to worship the God who made a promise. They were shrines to themselves. You do know that that's really what idols are. Idols are shrines we make for ourselves. Yes, we've read the stories where they've taken wood or stone or steel or any other object and they've made of them an idol, but that idol is simply a projection onto that item, what they themselves want. That's what our idols are even to this day. Our idols are simply what we want for ourselves. Seek me and live is the invitation. And then he says, seek the Lord and live. And in what follows in that invitation is, is listen, you have You have turned God's justice and righteousness into wormwood. When Sean read that passage, the translators properly inserted the word bitterness. Wormwood shows up in the scriptures a number of times, and each time it is a a reference to something that has turned bitter. It's like drinking bitter water. Seek the Lord and live, because what you have done is you have said you've been standing in for God's justice and His righteousness, and the people who have been betrayed by your lack of justice and righteousness have turned bitter. When we fail, when God's people fail to treat their neighbors with righteousness and justice, It is wormwood. It is bitter. And interestingly enough, when um, Amos gives the word of the Lord, it's described that that be ready because God's going to loose the fire of Joseph. That's kind of the imagery there. And if you think back, it is a reminder of the bitterness of captivity. In, In other words, seek the Lord and live is a reminder that if you continue to operate in injustice and unrighteousness, your life will be full of bitterness. You will be bitter. Your friends and neighbors will be bitter because as God's representatives, you are to be the people who sustain and support a vision of a God who is just and a God who is right. 
And in the Old Testament, those words justice and righteousness are so closely connected that to talk about one is to talk about the other. Seek me and live. You're going to a place and I'm not there. Pay attention. Seek the Lord and live. You have decided to live with your neighbors in unjust ways. Seek good is the third time this same word is used. Seek good and evil, and excuse me, seek good and not evil that you may live. Here, they're told to establish justice at the gates. And now, if you can get a picture of this, let's just say that to whatever town that you are from or, or where we are now living, that at the entrance to our town are the city gates. And when it came time to judge between parties who were in disagreement to settle disputes, they would go to the elders at the city gates. That way, anyone who would come would know that those who live here are going to treat their neighbors and their friends with justice and righteousness. They'll settle disputes properly. That way, when you're walking into a city, you can have the confidence that you're not going to be taken advantage of, you're not going to be oppressed, you're not going to be kicked to the curb because maybe you're not as wealthy, maybe you're not as skilled, you will be treated fairly and justly. And so the people are encouraged to establish justice at the gate. Turn it around, turn it around. This is a call to repentance. You have not been acting in justice, you have not been acting in righteousness, so would you please establish this at the gates? Listen, it wasn't just for them. It was for anyone who passed through. It was for anyone who came near to know that this is a place. This is a place that would be known as where goodness and, and right living prosper, where righteousness dwells. And he says, if in doing so you may discover that God may be gracious. This is in chapter 5, after he's already giving scathing critiques and descriptions of how the people had been faithless. He still says there is yet hope. In the midst of what's going on, in the midst of this stern and repetitive critique and criticism and call to judgment, there's always and often a call to repentance. Three times, God gives an invitation and so it means it bears repeating today. Seek me and live, the Lord says. Seek the Lord and live. Seek good and not evil that you may live. It is an invitation. It is not an invitation to a life begrudgingly given to a different way. It is, this is the way we live. This is how people flourish. This is how they get along with one another. Why don't you pursue that? Seek the Lord and live. Just after this first seek, we get a hymn. I, I have to tell you, I, I, I was noticing that, that when um, we've had these kind of competing um, worship conversations. You go back and you read hymns from the early 1900s, and they repeat just as much as they do from the 90s. We just kind of like a different, uh, maybe, uh, timing signature. Not too happy with syncopation from time to time. But they knew we needed it to repeat it. 
our hymns, growing up as a kid, there's always a chorus, same words over every, after every verse, right? Now, now if you were in a liberal Baptist church, you might sing all the verses in one chorus. But if you were in a fundamentalist church, like we were, you sang every verse and every chorus to follow. You repeated. Why? Because we know what bears and needs repeating. That didn't land as well as I thought it would. You didn't find it terribly funny. I'm not sure what I'll make of that. The hymn, the hymn that's here, you actually have sung the results of the hymn that's here in Amos 5. There is a, there is a hymn from the, the early nine, 900s, yes, 900s, that's been translated. And, and it, is, it is taken right from Amos 5. This hymn that shows up in verses 8 and 9, it's, some suggest this is the dead center of Amos's words, this hymn. And you want to make sense of it, I, I think what the hymn is telling us is look around. Uh, look around, so even if things seem out of order, Amos gives an invitation from the Lord. Would you look around? Now, let me set the stage. So this is, remember, happening about 760 B.C. or B.C.E., however you want to mark your time. And then by 721, one generation later, that's what generally biblical writers refer to as a generation. It's about 40 years. 40 years later, Israel falls. The northern kingdom is no more. It, it doesn't recover. What Amos said at the start of chapter 5 actually comes to pass. Amos is so convinced, he talks about it as if it's already been done, but it's 40 years later. Why? Because he knows that History has demonstrated that people aren't going to heed the invitation. And in not heeding the invitation, they're going to suffer captivity. That's exactly what's promised at the end of chapter 5. Because of your faithlessness, captivity is coming. And when it does, you're going to look around and what you're going to say is, God is playing hide and seek. God is nowhere to be found. How come he's not listening to our prayers? And Amos is going to have given them a hymn. And, and in this hymn, it's a counterpoint. It's, it's a way of saying, listen, about the time you think God's not paying attention to you, about the time you think God's not listening to you, just take a moment and watch the sunrise. And if that's not enough, watch the sun set. I mean, that's what he says. We sometimes read this as, as though some sort of um, supernatural intervention is going to take place and all of a sudden daylight is light's going to be turned to darkness and darkness is going to be turned to daylight. What is going on in the hymn is simply a statement of reality. God's still sustaining all that he made and we have the darkness of night that turns to day and we have the brightness of day that turns to night. In, in other words, he's saying, if you'll look around you, like the hymn that Carol read, if you'll look around you, you will see that everything that is sustained points to God. Now, I need to say something very quickly, carefully, call it a footnote if you will, but it, it is something we're often in danger of. Um, uh, I can worship God 
on the golf course. I can worship God from my fishing boat. I can see God in nature. Listen, all those things may be true. Someone may indeed think that this experience points them to something beyond themselves. Amazing views, wonderful experiences. But here's what we know. Those visions, those views, and those experiences will never directly link you to the one who made a promise to you. In other words, it is great and fantastic to say, look around and see all that God made, but until we recognize that the God who gave us himself, that's the one we're talking about. In other words, we, will, we can never arrive at the story of Jesus by hitting a dimple ball, wetting a hook, or hitting the snooze button one more time. It's, it's called, it's, it's how the, the Bible helps us understand the relationship between what's revealed and what's natural. And there's some who frankly believe that we naturally come to an awareness of God. And that may be, we may come to an awareness that there's something out there. But apart from God revealing God's self in Jesus, we don't know which God it is. And this is what's happening here. Israel already has the experience of God revealing God's self to them. So he's actually getting it in the proper order. You already know what God has done for you. He's freed you from captivity. He set you uh, free when Pharaoh's army pursued you. He gave you a land that wasn't yours. He set you up and made you prosper. And the way you have returned the favor is you've decided to be faithless. You're going to set up shrines for yourself. You're looking for your own self to worship. And when the consequences of your selfishness come, know this, I'm still taking care of you. That's the hymn. The hymn is, listen, when you have gone your own way, done your own thing, and you think that no one's paying attention, that God's not listening, He's nowhere to be found, look around. If the sun is is still rising and the sun is still setting, God is still at work. And just maybe you'll remember that the God who revealed himself to you is the God who's given you the next day and the next and the next. Here's a hymn. A a, a hymn is giving us uh, this proper understanding of how it is we look at the world around us and make the connection between what God has given us in himself and Jesus and what he has created. So the songwriter can say that Carol read earlier, God's feeding even the calves. So when we look around and we see the birds eating the berries in the trees, God is sustaining all that we see. And it points us to remember, hey, this one who's faithful even to the lilies of the field and the birds of the air is not hiding from us. He has with us and he's persisting to present himself to us with the invitation seek me seek me and that's why it's important to know who the caller is 
that's why when we look at the things that are repeated here, the repetition that we get, seek me and live, seek the Lord and live, seek good and not evil, we also get God self-identifying. The, the caller. And, and there, is, there is in rich church history, there is a call to worship. Rusty does that every Sunday morning. Would you stand as we worship? It's a call. It's a call to worship. But Rusty's not asking us, let's worship the worship band. That does happen in places. He's not saying worship me or Brad on the guitar or Ben on the bass or whichever one of our, our great musicians come sing, like LaCrissa, he's saying, we're going to worship the Lord. It's a, who's the caller? Well, the important thing here that's going on in Amos 5 is, is know the one who's calling you. The one who says, seek me. The one who says, seek the Lord. The one who says, seek good. Who is that? And, and, and it's not like Israel shouldn't know, but guess what? God's still repeating himself as he gives the word to his people three times. We get, first of all, that uh, the, um, as if Israel didn't know, the Lord is his name. Now, if you have a uh, more contemporary copy of the Bible uh, by a, a new publisher, then there's every good chance that in your a copy of the Bible, the word LORD there is all caps. It is in mine. And that's what publishers do to try to help us understand kind of if we read the frontispiece in your Bible, which none of us do. But in the frontispiece of the Bible, it'll tell you why. Why is sometimes it all caps? Sometimes why is it lowercase Lord God? Sometimes, why is it just God? They will tell you what they're distinguishing. They're distinguishing the variety of Hebrew words. And when you see all caps in your Bible, it is a reference to the covenant name for God. That is, the God that Israel knew well, who had revealed himself to first Abram. By that name, it was by the time we get to Moses. And that covenant name is established. I will be who I will be. You've heard it, I am who I am. It, it's, a, it's a tough, tough translation. Those the, uh, tetragrammaton. Oh, you see, I went to seminary. Don't even know what that means. Um, Y-H-W-H. Four letters, four consonants. Four consonants together. Israel learned that is the God who's revealed himself to us. So when you see all, all caps, Lord, in your Bible, they're telling you this is the covenant name for God. And so Israel, who is the recipient of the covenant, is being reminded and repeated that it is the Lord, their Lord, their God, their covenant God, who is saying to them, seek me and live. Seek the Lord and live. Seek good and not evil, that you may live. Who is the caller? So three times, there's an addition. So the Lord, the God of hosts. The Lord, the God of hosts. The Lord, the God of hosts. Three times, which means God is saying, listen, I'm telling you that I've got all I need to give you what I promised you. 
That's why Eugene Peterson has used the phrase, God of angel armies. It is to say, God and all the heavenly host. If you think God is incapable of delivering you, know he already has and he will continue to do so. I am the Lord, your covenant God. I'm the God who has everything you need. You don't need anything else. Which also means I'm the God who can do what I say. I'm the God who can do what I say. And I am not required to ignore your faithlessness. So by the time you get to chapter 5, it's pretty bleak and clear what's going on with Israel. They refuse. They refuse the invitation. They refuse the hymn. And they refuse the caller. And so when you read the end, you find out that they're indeed going to face the consequences of their faithlessness such that by the time you get to verse 1, that first line should possibly be translated, Woe to you who are at ease in Zion. In other words, if you're comfortable with all this, you're going to be surprised. If you're comfortable in your faithlessness, you're going to be surprised. If you're comfortable thinking that the Lord, your covenant God, who's capable of doing everything he says he's going to do, is going to, is going to sustain your faithlessness, he won't. But he will be with you. He will be with you. God repeats himself. God repeats himself and we should be glad we should be glad that God repeats himself over and over and over again and I know this is going to sound terribly manipulative because we've been very poor at how to couch this but when we gather for worship we're gathering to repeat because we too quickly forget. The early church gathered every day. I'm not saying we should go back to that, okay? But what I am saying is that we forget. And the further we go between remembrances and repetitions, there's a greater likelihood that we will not hear the invitation. We won't be reminded about the hymn and we'll neglect the caller, the consequences of which God does not want for you or for me. But he will not, he will not keep the consequences of our lack of repetition and remembering at bay. The call is our trust. Anything worth saying is worth repeating Anything worth doing is worth doing again. The humble poet reminds us it's rare that we come across something worthwhile in life and a single encounter enough for it to stay with us. We don't think twice about singing John Newton's Amazing Grace. Let's sing it again. And again, we would say, what a great hymn. 
We gladly repeat Julia Johnston's hymn, Marvelous Grace. Marvelous grace of our loving Lord, grace that exceeds our sin and our guilt. Yonder on Calvary's mount outpoured, there where the blood of the Lamb was spilt. And we repeat the celebration of the Lord's Supper. We repeat the celebration of that meal of thanksgiving that the church called the Eucharist. We, we celebrate that meal called communion because it is a call to remember what God has repeated to us. Over and again. In fact, it was the Apostle Paul who said, For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let me be as clear as I know how to be. Sharing the Lord's Supper and referring to it as special is certainly accurate. But repeating it often doesn't reduce its specialness. I have a lot of um, probably inappropriate analogies to offer, but let me just say that there are lots of things we repeat that we think are special. And we don't up and decide, let's try them infrequently. So we celebrate the Lord's Supper once a month and would be happy even more often, but we do it because we forget the invitation. We don't pay attention to the hymn. And we have trouble remembering who the caller is. So you're invited to the table today because tis grace that brought us safe thus far and it's grace that will lead us home. Would you pray with me?